Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Well, I hope you have a copy of the text in front of you this morning. Uh, we have a lot of verses to cover, very little time to do it in. Uh, the good news is this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, and uh, therefore I'm going to skip over it. <laughs> uh, if you do have your text in front of you, what you'll notice is in chapter 5, uh, verse 10. Uh, this is where we finished up last week. Uh, Randy brought us to this point in the scriptures and talking about Jesus as our high priest. Uh, you remember that, that uh, we're going through Hebrews and uh, um, the author to the book of Hebrews says that we are to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our faith. And then first of all, he talks about he is an apostle of our faith the same way as Moses was an apostle of the old covenant. Moses was someone who was sent on a mission to accomplish the purposes of God. Jesus sent on a mission to accomplish the purposes of God. So in that sense, we can think about uh, the, the experience of God's people in the Exodus with Moses and uh, that illuminates our experience with Christ as we journey through life. And so we are on an exodus, and that was uh, chapter 4 as we were walking through, t 3 and 4, as we were walking through the, um, uh, the, the experience of moving through the wilderness on a journey to the promised rest. And the challenge there was do not grow weary and, and do not stumble and fall to one side because of unbelief, because of of the failure to grasp Jesus Christ by faith. And so we consider Jesus the apostle of our faith, and then we consider Jesus the high priest of our faith. And this is what Randy uh, brought to us the last time we were together in the book of Hebrews and talked about the qualifications of priesthood and how Jesus is the perfect high priest. But in coming down to the end of that passage that we looked at our last time, we came to verse 10, uh, where uh, speaking of Jesus, we read, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, this is not something that uh, we write songs about. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll be looking at that next week, but uh, this figure of Melchizedek and how that relates to Christ, it's a, it's a very, uh, uh, not so much complex, but it's a very deep subject, and it requires a lot of attention. But if you look at that in verse 10, he says, designated after uh, the order of Melchizedek, and then look at chapter 7, verse 1, he says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High. It's almost as if you could skip from 5.10 to 7.1 and not miss the middle part. And the reason for that is um, the author of, of Hebrews steps to one side and almost he says, now look, I want to talk about Melchizedek. It's very hard to understand. And you know, folks, some of you are not up to it. You really, you don't understand these things because you are still uh, wallowing around in, in a kind of spiritual immaturity. These things, he says in, in, in uh, uh, 5.11, he says, this is hard to understand since you become dull of hearing. He says, but we're going to press on and talk about it. You really need a, a, a refresher course on all the basics of Christianity, but I, I need to move on. And he spends six chapters before he moves, uh, or one chapter in chapter six. He spends all of chapter six before he moves on, but he says, I need to move on. I need to get going. And the issue here is one of maturity. Look at chapter six, verse one. 
It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not talking about let's forget the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not saying we don't need the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's saying, but for the moment in our consideration together, in our study together, we're not going to go over the, the basic parts of the entry of Christ. I want to talk about the glory of Christ and who he is as this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's going to be hard to understand. I really need to cover the basics, but I can't wait to tell you about the wonder and the beauty of Christ, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying, let's forget about the elementary principles. He's saying, let's move on from the elementary principles. And so um, he says, let us, move, let us leave, therefore, the elementary uh, doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, there are some great saints of church history and, and great believers in Christ today that, that we look up to. And we see folks who have a great track record of faith and obedience, who have a great track record of, of always uh, gravitating towards Christ and always seeking the will of God and always seeking the glory of God in all that they do. We, we, we see such great figures before us, and we admire them, and we say, I wish I could be like that, because that is a person who is a mature Christian. And we get this idea that to be a mature Christian means that somehow you have arrived, that somehow you've accomplished great things, and now God is proud of you, and now God is glad to have you. And as a mature Christian, now you're sort of walking through life, never stumbling, never suffering through temptation, never going through sorrow, just sort of floating through life, you know, as a mature believer. That is not what the word maturity means. This Greek word, telaios, in, uh, in the text, is a word, um, comes from a word family, and it means suited for the purpose for which you were created. It's the same word family that Jesus used when he said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What he meant by that was, be ye perfectly suited for what uh, God wants to accomplish in your life, even as God is perfectly suited for his glory. It's a word that you would use if you wanted to talk about something works the way it's supposed to work. If you want a perfect screwdriver, what's a perfect screwdriver? I'm talking about the tools, folks. You're Baptist. <laughs> if you got that joke, shame on you. <laughs> but, but, I don't know why I think of these things. But the perfect screwdriver is the one that, that, that can turn the screw and set it into the, in, into the place where it's supposed to be, into the threads, and, and get it bolted in there. Uh, that's the perfect screwdriver. It doesn't matter what color it is, how long it is. Well, you know, as long as you can use it, it it's all right. And so uh, if, if you can't get the screw in, right, it's the screwdriver's fault. It's not my fault. But anyway, uh, so, but it has to do with perfection. It uh, has to do with suited for what you were designed to do. When we come to Jesus Christ and are born again, he designs us for the glory of the Father in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're designed to do. That's our purpose. That's, that's our reason for being here. That, that's why we go through what we go through. We are here that God, the Father, would receive the glory through our faith and allegiance to his Son, Jesus Christ, moving and working in us by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the mature Christian life. 
And what that means is that the youngest Christian and the oldest Christian can be equally mature as long as they're headed and focused in the right direction and on the right person. Immaturity has to do with eyes wandering off the goal, lives that are wandering off the path. Immaturity has to do with compromising the wonder of Christ with the, the, the shallow things of the world. So when he says, let's press on to maturity, he's saying, let's do what God designed us to do. Let's look at this glory of Christ. Let's look at this wonder of what God has done in Jesus. And that's why the youngest Christian can, can get something out of what we're going to study next week in this uh, priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, I want you to know it's, it's some of the hardest stuff to understand. And uh, uh, we're going to dash through it so you can't tell that I'm still struggling with it. But the, uh, the thing is, a mature Christian, you might have been a Christian for a week, but you can be mature if you love Jesus. And you're a mature believer if you just want, want Christ to be honored and glorified. So you're reading through this thing. Say you get to chapter 7, you're reading high priest, Abraham, tithes, king of Salem, righteousness. I don't know what that means, but it's about Jesus and it's okay with me. You know, I don't understand all of it yet. But what I do understand tells me Jesus is a wonderful Savior. I can't comprehend all that, that he's talking about, but what I can comprehend is that this Jesus is magnificent and worthy of glory, honor, and praise. Amen. See, you can be a, a young Christian and, and still know that it's all about Christ and for his glory. Look, at the, the sign of maturity is not that you stopped singing, Jesus loves me. The sign of a mature Christian is that he sings, Jesus loves me with more wonder and more awe and more fascination with the grace that allows us to sing such a thing, that Jesus loves me. And not only that, I can know it. See, maturity doesn't have to do with levels of, of understanding or levels of achievement. It has to do with commitment and focus and faith and being, being just, just embraced by who Jesus Christ is. And so we're reading here, he says, look, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, because when I do, you, you're going to want to do, you know, fist pumps and roundhouse kicks. I mean, <laughs> why even you Baptists will stand up and say hallelujah. When you start to see who this Melchizedek was and who Jesus is, a high priest out of the heavens, out of the glory. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, he says, you, you, you're just going to you're just going to rejoice at who Jesus is. Now it's hard for me to tell you this because some of you are not mature. And by that he means some of you think that Jesus is just a part of your life, and you think that he's an option in life, and you think you can ignore him in life. And there are dangers to that kind of immaturity. There's the danger of becoming dull of hearing. That's what he says in chapter 5. He says, I'd like to tell you about this, but so many of you are dull of hearing. When I say these things, they just go right over, over your head. You're not even listening. You know, you're, you're so hard of hearing that, that the Word of God can't even penetrate in, 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 into, into your mind, into your thinking and understanding. You're so caught up with what the world is saying and what you think uh, the world wants you to believe and the world wants you to do. You, you, you're so out of focus with Christ that, that you're not getting it. The danger of that kind of immaturity is you, you, you get dull and you don't hear the Word of God. You don't hear that life-transforming word that comes to us through the Scripture. You don't hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Your worship becomes dull. 
And you start to say things like, this is boring. And you start to say things like, I don't like this. All they ever do is sing about Jesus, you know. Guy behind me, all he does is sing about Jesus. Guy in front of me, sing about Jesus. Don't they know I've, I've got a game to get to, lunch is on the, on the table? So you become dull in your worship. And you become dull and immature in your living and in your obedience. And you start to say things like, well, I don't think you have to dot, 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 insert a commandment of the Bible there. I don't think I have to do that. I don't think I have to obey. Nobody else does. And you become dull of hearing, and your whole life becomes dull. So that's the first danger of immaturity. You just miss out on the wonder of God speaking to us and the wonder of God guiding us and leading us and calling us together to worship. So there, there's that danger of becoming dull of hearing, hard of hearing. And then there's the danger of drifting away from Christ. That's what he's talking about in chapter 6. I'll just put these in front of you very quickly, understanding that there are uh, scads of different ways uh, well, okay, of different ways to, to understand this passage, uh, let me suggest at least one that I think is in concert with the Scripture. Remember, he's, he's trying to point out, I'd love to tell you about Melchizedek, but you're, you're immature. You're not, you're not able to hear. And so he says it this way, um, I'd, I'd love to tell you about the elementary doctrines, but you're not even listening to those. And so I'm, I'm just going to move on for them. And, and we're not going to talk about uh, the, um, uh, the repentance from dead works and faith in God. We're not going to talk about uh, doctrines and instructions of, of washings and baptisms is really the word there. And we're not going to talk about the laying on of hands and how you receive the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and uh, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about the resurrection and, and, and eternal judgment. Folks, those are good things to talk about. He, he lists six things. You know what I, when I, when I read that, you know what goes off in my head? Six weeks of sermons. So you understand the maturity with which I'm moving through this. It says, we're not going to talk about that. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits. Oh, what a warning phrase that is, if God permits. What happens if God summons you before his judgment throne before you get back to where you need to be. Those are awesome words. That's another sermon like that. But verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away. A lot of ways to take that. Let me just remind you. He's saying, I want to tell you about the glory of Jesus and this, this priest after the order of Melchizedek. But look, if you've experienced all these wonderful things, if you've come so close to the Word of God that the, the Holy Spirit has sort of just flowed over the, you know, over the banks and into your life and, and you've already seen something of the light of Jesus Christ and, and something of the wonders of the age to come and all these things are already something that you've, you've been close to and you've been experiencing and, and you see all that and yet you say, I will have nothing to do with Christ. And yet you say, I don't want to be surrendered to him. I don't want him for my Lord. I came to church to fix my marriage, to learn how to run my finances so that children could learn Bible stories, so that my family would be thought well of. 
I came to church for other reasons, but you're talking about this Jesus and I don't want him. And you fall away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, everything we've read up to this point has been a past tense verb in the Greek. It's an aorist tense. It says, these are things that just happened. They just happened in your life. They just happened. You know, they're, they're things that, that have a date and a time on the calendar. It says, but we can't be restoring you to repentance. And by the way, in verse 1, that's the first thing that, that he talks about. He says, we can't get you back to where you understand that you're a sinner. Because if you reject Christ, there is no other plan. If you reject Christ, there's not something else to talk about. Beloved, if you know what the plan of salvation is, and yet you have spurned Christ, if you know how to be saved and how to have an eternal home in heaven, and yet you have said to Jesus, I don't want you in my life, it's not like we can plead something else with you. I mean, it's not like we can come to you and say, oh, well, I understand you don't like Jesus, but how about the church? We're real nice people. We eat a lot. You know, you'll, you'll enjoy it. It's not like we can come to you and say, oh, but, but look at the Bible. It's a wonderful piece of literature. Look at the beauty of the King James text, and, and it's a part of the literature of Western society. Don't you want to be a part of that beauty? Uh, you can't go and say, look, wouldn't you like to be in, in worship services? They're great experiences. The music is great. Don't listen to the words, but, but the music is fine. We cannot plead anything else but Jesus Christ. And if you reject him, there's nothing left to say. That's what he means. It's impossible to restore someone to repentance who is rejecting Christ. Because when they do, they are, how does he put it? They are, I'll find it here. They are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own heart, holding him up to contempt. Because they are saying this Jesus should be rejected the way he was rejected so long ago and placed on a cross. They're saying, I don't want anything to do with him. See, the book of Hebrews is in many ways um, designed to spur us to perseverance, to keep on keeping on. To understand this Jesus greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the high priest, greater than Melchizedek, greater than all, that this Jesus is worthy of all our allegiance. And there's no other path and no other way, no other avenue to come to the Father. And so hang in there. Chapter 2, don't neglect him. Don't drift away. Chapter 3, consider him. Have your eyes focused upon him. Chapter 5 and 6, grow up in him. Be mature in him. Because without him, there's just nothing left. There's nothing else to say. There's a danger of immaturity because of what it might be actually is lostness. And it's a soul-searching question to ask. Is my neglect of Christ so deep that I never embraced him at all? There's a danger of moving away from Christ, and even for the believer, of 
leaving him out. And you know, someone who, who does not claim to know Christ, you know, and they, they go out and they tie one on and they're, they're seen uh, staggering around the world drunk, or they're known in the office to be a manipulator, someone who will just uh, stab you in the back for the sake of the office politics, who will climb over other people to get ahead. If that person is not a believer, it does nothing to the reputation of Christ. But you claim the name of Christian. You claim that you are someone who, who knows what Christianity is about, and yet you haven't got a clue, and yet you're living in, a, in opposition to him. When you claim the name of Christ and then lie, claim the name of Christ and then cheat. Claim the name of Christ and then wound and hurt others. Claim the name of Christ and then let, let the, the words of bigotry and prejudice come out of your, your mouth. Claim the name of Christ and then you hate other people. When you claim the name of Christ but you don't live for Christ, you hold him up for public contempt in a way that the world cannot do. There's a danger to immaturity, danger of drifting away from Christ, and there's a danger of being unproductive. Um, he puts it this way. It starts in uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it. See, that's a whole sermon there. That's grace. You know that, don't you? you know, the back 40 doesn't decide when it's going to rain. You know, the field doesn't get together and have a little committee and say, when do you want it to rain? I don't know. Let's, let's make it rain uh, when they're out here playing ball. That would be a good idea, you know. Now the rain just comes, God sends the rain, and the, and the earth, the soil just receives it from the grace of God. Well, you see another sermon there. But, but land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. In other words, a property that is doing what it was designed to do, bringing forth the fruit it was cultivated to bring forth fulfilling its purpose. It's a perfect piece of land. It's a mature piece of land. That kind of land receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, near to being cursed, near to being cursed. That's another word of grace, folks. Uh, that, that Greek word, ingus, is, is the word. It's, it's, it's close to being cursed. It's acting like it ought to be cursed. And its end is to be burned. Now, what happens when you burn a field? Just think it through. What happens when you burn a field? You burn the rocks? You burn the dirt? You burn the thorns and the thistles? You burn all the clutter? You burn all that which was offensive to the farmer? You burn all of that that said this piece of property did not produce what it should produce. In other words, you burn it in order to be able to use it. There's a lot of grace going on in that, folks. So, so that's, you know, if, if you, you drift away from Christ, you're not focused on Christ. There's a great danger of having an unproductive life. Paul put it this way, he said, look, the gospel comes to us and there's no other foundation that can be laid other than the one that is laid and that's Jesus Christ. He is the only foundation of life. But now you build on him. You build either with gold or silver or precious jewels or you can build on him with wood. You can build on him with, with hay. You can build on him with stubble. But the day will come when the man's work is judged through fire. There is a judgment coming. 
And if what you have built on the foundation is consumed, there's a total loss. Paul goes on to say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, The man is saved, yet as through fire, with nothing to offer to the Father, but an empty, useless, pointless life. You see, when we lack maturity, when our focus is off Christ, when we're not, we're not um, sold out to Him, um, my greatest desire for you is that you would have a passion for Jesus, that you would just love Him like crazy. My, my desire for you is that Jesus would be so important to you that you can't get enough of Him. My desire for you is that you would be head over heels in love with Christ. Because if you are, and when you are, everything else will take care of itself. Everything else will take care of itself. But without him, none of it makes any sense. Without him, none of it holds together. Apart from a love for Christ, it turns into mere religion. It turns into the burdensome oppression of constant judgmentalism. Without Christ, there is no grace, and without grace, there is no life. My desire for you is that you would love Jesus like crazy, and he would be everything to you. Because when he is, then it makes sense, and then you are a mature believer in Jesus. So Hebrews says, I'd love to tell you about this, Jesus, but look, some of you are immature, and you're hard of hearing, and you're drifting away, and you're unproductive. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You know, he said, as I, as I think about you guys, I see Christ in you. I see a love for Jesus in you. I see a maturity going on in you because I see the things that come along with salvation. I see you focused on that. Now, here's the thing. A little two-year-old child just barely able to talk, barely able to talk, Jesus loves me. That's a mature believer. 62-year-old, at this point, barely able to talk. <laughs> Jesus loves me. That's maturity. See, maturity isn't measured by what you've done. And maturity isn't measured by accomplishments or how long you've been on the journey or something you've attained. The maturity of the Christian believer is measured by the passion we have for Christ. And you don't have to wait to be mature. You can love him now. You can be sold out to him now. I mean, we come to the Lord's table in just a moment. And we come from so many different directions, so many life paths, so many biographies, but we come to the one table of Jesus Christ. 
And some will contemplate a very simple message. His blood shed for me, his body broken for me. Others will contemplate, contemplate some, some deeper truths about of the cost of salvation and the wounding of, the, of, of God's heart and the, and the existence of the, of the scars in heaven even to this moment. And, and we'll just praise him. But all come with a mature passion for this Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love him this morning? Do you love him to the point that every moment needs to be spent in his presence and every thought needs to be surrendered to him? Do you love him? Have you ever loved him? If you need salvation, if you need to know your sins are forgiven and that your eternal destiny is set and secure in heaven and the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart, ask Jesus into your heart to be Lord and Savior. You can do that right now, right where you're sitting, right where you are right now. Brother and sister in Christ, do you love him? Love him more. Love him more. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, how wonderfully gracious and patient you are with us. How thankful we are that our estate is not set by our works and our understanding, but by your grace and love for us in Christ Jesus. Help us to see him, to know him, to hear him, Father, especially to love him in all that we say and all that we do, that you would be glorified, honored, praised, and adored. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Set free, cry.